Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. I get up every morning and I make sure that nothing happened overnight or there's nothing in the news of the day that I should suspend what I've already planned to talk with you about and replace it with something else. Well, this morning, one of the headlines that caught my attention uh, is out of Hollywood. And I lift this up um, as a I really do honestly lift this up as a point of prayer. But I also also lift this up as one of those ways that you can bring God back into the conversations of the day via a headline. And so let me just, you know, warn you in advance. The headline is very sad. Chrissy Teigen and John Legend, um, depending on which headline you read, if you read it on Twitter, you would read this. Chrissy Teigen and John Legend lose their child after pregnancy complications. If you were to read it on CNN, the headline reads, Chrissy Teigen loses baby after pregnancy complications, calling it the darkest of days. If you read the same headline on TMZ, You would read Chrissy Teigen and John Legend share devastating news. Their son has died. Um, Why lift this up? Chrissy Teigen was in the third trimester of her pregnancy. They had already named their son Jack. They were calling him Jack. They talk about him as their son. Um, And in all of the media coverage, you will hear this baby referred to as a baby, as their son, as their child, Um, The grief is real. The loss is real. For any of you who have suffered a miscarriage, you know the reality uh, of which we're we're speaking this morning. And so we're going to grieve with those who grieve. But we're also going to allow this headline to be used by God to amplify the reality that the culture is um, only selectively, only selectively convinced that what is in the womb of a woman is not a baby. Everyone knows, everyone knows that a woman is pregnant with more than the possibility of a person. She's pregnant with a human baby. And so the headline notes the loss of a child. The article acknowledges uh, that this couple lost their baby, a baby boy named Jack. And so this morning, I want you to allow this headline to move you to prayer for this couple and their loss move you to prayer for other couples like them and the the very real loss that uh, mothers and dads and grandparents and families and sisters and brothers suffer when a child um, is not born alive. And then let this also season the conversations that you have today, particularly with people who have bought into the cultural delusion that that's not a baby. It's a baby, a baby boy, and his name is Jack. Next up, I've got Dr. Peter Kapsner. He and I are going to lighten things up. Uh, All he knows about the first headline is that it features five African gray parrots. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
Dr. Peter Kapsner is here. Ready to comment. Good morning, sir. (laughs) Good morning. You're killing me with this five African parrot, uh, gray parrot headline. I have no idea what you're talking about, and I've resisted the temptation to Google it. That's good. That's good. I I appreciate that. Uh, This takes place at the Lincolnshire Wildlife Park in London. You familiar (laughs) with this? I I haven't been to the park, but yes, I'm familiar with the area. Uh, These particular birds, um, these five African gray parrots um, arrived with a new flock uh, on August the 15th, received into Friskney Park. Uh, It is home to 1,500 parrots. These five are now um, in criminal quarantine. (laughs) What? Okay, one of, so, so, this is, this could be, the the headline here could be foul-mouthed fowl, birds of a feather, one bad apple. Right. Uh, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. That would obviously (laughs) be the more spiritual way of, of headlining this. But I think we'll just go with profane parrots. Okay, so what did they do that that launched so them into quarantine? One, yes. So one of the birds taught all of the other birds really, really salty language <laughs> that they then, the five of them, converse in just this total, awful, profane banter every time a person walks up to the enclosure. And so the, these birds just start swearing. <laughs> Like literally within minutes of, uh, of uh, you know, of, of people, of you know, like people catch their attention, right? And they just, it's just five birds in a discourse of obscenity. <laughs> Did you say there's 1,500 total parrots in this park? Yeah, and so this is I the concern. The park is concerned. The park is concerned that if they don't quarantine these birds, then obviously the one who infected the five, the five would now infect the 1,500. No one would come to the park because who's going to go to a place to <laughs> hear birds swear at each other? Well, in fact, millions of people are logging say, on I'm to sure. hear, hear the birds <laughs> yes, swear I'm at sure. each other. So um, here's the conversation I want to have. How is it? How is it that we, as a culture, can recognize profanity when it's coming out of the mouth of an African gray parrot? We can recognize that one bad apple spoils the bunch. We can recognize the leaven of the Pharisee when it's in the form of an African gray parrot, but we can't recognize it when it's on TV no, or on Twitter or in conversation in the communities where we live. What's no. wrong with us? I'd say, Carmen, it's a great question. And and the fact that uh, millions of people are flocking, right, flocking to the, these parrots to, to see this. And I've thought about that a lot. And I remember being pretty convicted when I was about, I want to say, maybe 32, 33 years old. And we had had some young children and we are starting to, to most of my TV watching revolved around some combination of Sesame Street and Barney, right? I mean, that, that's what I was going to be watching if I was watching anything. And it had been then maybe about five or six years since I had watched any kind of television show, like maybe a Law and Order was one of my favorite shows for a while. And, and I had become so numb to sort of the opening of Law and Order, which almost always involves some kind of violent activity. And, uh, and then they have to solve the case and all of that. But I, I'd become deadened to the fact that a human life had been taken on TV in front of me and it didn't bug me anymore. And, and then after about five years or six years away from it with mostly the purple dinosaur and, and uh, watching Sesame Street, uh, I went back and watched a, a, an episode of Law and & Order and I, I saw that opening scene and my spirit just recoiled. And, and I think that's, you know, it is an interesting thing, isn't it? How sin has a leavening effect, I think, not just through a community of faith, but it also has a way of deadening our heart to those things that really are antithetical to the kingdom. And, and I, I mean, the, the parrot thing is a great example of that, of, of, of just that we're 
we can notice it in the situation, like you said, but in our day-to-day life, I think I, I just wonder how many things I'm kind of deadened to right now that I don't always know that I'm deadened to. So here's um, one more thing about the <clears throat> about this park in Lincolnshire that you probably didn't know. Up until now, up until now, the most famous uh, bird in the park is Chico. Uh, and he is also a parrot um, because he is a viral uh, video star up until now. I mean, he's not. He's going to be displaced by these five, I'm sure. <laughs> of course. Um, yes. For his um, his on key, almost perfect singing of Beyonce's If I Were a Boy. No way. Yeah. A parrot can sing like Beyonce. I mean, I've seen this these what, things at the Minnesota is, Zoo, and there's a couple this words is what here I have and there. For you. That's this is what I have for you. I, I am going to Google this later now that you've read okay. this headline. So, yes. <laughs> um, so uh, here's um, here's my encouragement to everybody uh, today. If you're listening, this park is now making plans for next Easter. That's uh, that's sort of how this article ends ends in the Lincolnshire Live version. Although everybody, including like People Magazine, has now covered this. But um, I went to the real source, the Lincolnshire Live site in Lincolnshire. Because I feel like, you know, all the, the, the best news is the most local version of it. Um, and they're talking about their plans for Easter at the park. And so here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping they're going to teach parrots how to, for one, to say, he is risen, and the other to say... <laughs> he is risen indeed. Oh, I love right? that idea. I Isn't love that, that idea. Isn't that what should happen in yes, this Yes, if you could have Easter? parrots doing that deal, that would be fantastic. Right? 750 right? on one side, 755 on the other, it would be perfect. <gasps> It would be perfect. I love this that. Is, this, is a, this is a better use. It's of, a uh, way uh, better use. Yes, and probably a better use of our time this morning. I okay, hey, when we come back, um, I would like uh, to have a conversation with you about, it's a kind of a, it is a conversation about Amy Coney Barrett, but it's really kind of a sideline conversation um, about her, um, because I think that the, the misunderstanding of people of faith by people in the media, and particularly those who are of a secular mindset, I think that's really what is in play here. So I'd like to talk with you about that. Is that good? That's great. Yep. All right. That's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Peter Kapsner, <laughs> Dr. Kapsner. I know it was hard for you. You did not resist Googling during the break, I- did you? <laughs> No, I can neither confirm didn't. nor deny, Carmen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Plead the fifth. <laughs> oh, he did. He did. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You can't. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 1,500 no, no. parrots, Carmen. I can't recover from this conversation <laughs> Only right now. five of them are being naughty, though. Right, apparently. right. So, it's the, you know, the odds are still good that there's the redemption in view. <laughs> I love I'm, it. I'm really, I'm going to send them an email. I want the, I want to hear the parrot say yes. he is risen and then the other say he is risen indeed by Easter. I feel like if we could get these five to repent. Yes. You know, and turn, could, yep, just turn their ways. Right. Just turn it away. Okay. Yep. So let's, uh, let's talk about um, Amy Cody Barrett, but let's talk about it from this angle. You and I've both read uh, a piece by David French um, laying out really, I think what is a pretty astute observation. And that is the issue is not that she belongs to um, you know, a small religious group within the Catholic Church called the People of Praise, that they're charismatic and that um, and that they have some mutual commitments to one another that might be um, might be uh, a surprise to some people. They're right. not a surprise to people who like actually go to church. 
Right. I, it's part of what I really appreciated about the David French article, because for people who have been following this Amy Coney Barrett situation, there are some uh, that are maybe grilling her, some of the United States senators, for example, that um, from the outside looking in and, and many of the even the press coverage from the outside looking in, uh, when they start saying, gosh, she actually is maybe beholden to church leadership who may speak into her marriage, for example. And now that's a really a usual thing for us who are, who go to church, we we trust elders, we trust our pastors to counsel us, to speak to us, or there there might be some sharing of goods in common. Again, outside looking in, that seems really strange to a lot of people. I I think it was the New York Times editor, right, who said, "I just don't understand religion." I mean, what are they possibly doing in that community? And they can make it and spin it in such a way they can make it sound really sort of crazy from the outside looking in. I remember. When I was studying at the University of Edinburgh for the first time, World Religions, and there was this question about whether an outsider to a specific religious community could really understand what the experience is of the insider of that religious community. And, and so can you actually even study religious communities from the outside when you're actually not part of the inside? Or will it always sound completely absurd to you? And, and clearly, many people are looking at Amy Coney Barrett's experience as uh, absolutely absurd. But one of the things you and I were texting about and talking about is when you look back in the early church, one of the reasons why the early church was sort of cast to the edges of Roman society, and even in some way the the persecution of them was justified, is that from their perspective, they were eating, uh, metaphorically, I suppose, but uh, depending on, on the tradition in which you grow up, they were eating of the flesh and the blood of Jesus each week, which was central to their experience at the communion table. And you can even look back at some of the early church fathers and their writings about Jesus that would have been circulated in early Roman society. People like Justin Martyr says that uh, we are eating of both the flesh and the blood that incarnated Jesus. Or uh, Origen, one of the early church fathers, saying, my flesh is truly food and my blood is truly drink. Now, we could go through a lot of those, Carmen, but can you imagine if there was a religious community today that said, this is what we're doing week in and week out? I mean, the same press and the same political leadership would have an absolute field day. They would think we've got to drive these crazies out of society. Uh, And yet that is uh, absolutely central, the communion table, to our Christian experience. So it's pretty interesting to watch. Uh, And I think one of the things that for me is uh, is a little bit frustrating from time to time is when somebody like a Senator Dianne Feinstein says to Amy Coney Barrett uh, as part of her previous confirmation to a federal judgeship is that your dogma lives loudly inside of you, uh, Amy. And, and, And I think... You know, Carmen, if dogma simply means those beliefs that we hold really firmly to that that we will not compromise, well, then Feinstein also has a dogma that's living loudly inside of her. And we all do on some level. It's just that Feinstein's dogma is that all religion is probably baloney at the end of the day. And so there is this really interesting collision, isn't there, between the outsiders looking at the insider practice of, of this of this woman of appears to be profound faith and say, that's absolutely absurd. That makes no sense to me. Uh, one more reason why I will never be in a Senate confirmation hearing. <clears throat> I mean, right in the hot seat yeah. because I I would have I would have to respond. I mean, I know that my dogma lives loudly in me, right? But um, uh, 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 but Feinstein's dogma was barking. Absolutely, it was. It, like right. So it's one thing to allow your sincerely held beliefs, in fact, not only allow, but like I'm consciously seeking to yield moment by moment every day to the influence of the Holy Spirit 
within me, bringing my uh, my life into greater conformity with who Christ is. That sounds crazy. It does sound crazy to, to the outsider. People yes. who, yeah, to people who do not understand who Christ is, what it means to become, uh, to be a person who is in Christ and in whom Christ dwells by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, I'm, I'm reading the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, and I am seeking to know God better in order that I might know myself better, in order that I might see my sin more clearly, in order that I might be able to yield um, in an even more significant way to the ongoing influence of the Holy Spirit to make my life more like Jesus. Like, I, you just start, <laughs> right. you just go down that list. And that means, and that means, by the way, I'm in a fully submitted Christian marriage right. to a man who is the head of our household. And um, and people probably, like, who know me at all think, wow, that must be quite a guy, right? Because, you know, Carmen doesn't seem all that submissive. Well, that's because you misunderstand submission in marriage, right? Exactly. I mean, these conversations about male headship um, in, in marriage and in the church um, are badly misunderstood. They're just badly misunderstood by a secular world. And yeah. it's our responsibility as Christians to help people understand what we, what we mean when we talk about spiritual authority or spiritual headship. You're so right, Carmen. And, and the, I mean, the, the Christian life and actually God's kingdom as a whole, it, it just pulsates and is, is infused with one singular word, and that word is love. And, and unfortunately, that can be a kind of a tired word until you begin to dive into it, because what you just described is love is always seeking to yield itself for the good of another. And, and so our Christian faith is something that is, is entirely antithetical to what I would suggest is the primary dogma of American culture. And again, I love our country, but I think we have to be very clear-eyed that the American dogma would be you do you and I need to sort of get what I can out of life. I need to sort out my own happiness. That is so different than what you just described, whether it be in a marriage where you have this this uh, submission uh, that is mutual in both ways. There is this uh, sense in which the, the husband is submitting in love towards his wife, seeking her well-being, and the, and the wife is doing the same thing uh, in that relationship between the two. The Christian community is supposed to be marked by that, which is why Christian communities will often share goods in common. That looks so weird to the outside world. And yet when you are being motivated and as you grow in the love of God's kingdom, you begin to naturally pour out towards other people where their well-being should be put in a place of primacy ahead of one's own. Boy, that kind of dogma, Carmen, uh, Carmen, that makes no sense at all in, in the dogma of the day. Yeah. Okay, we got a whole another section of headlines to talk about about trans identifying individuals, but we're going to have to hold that for another day and another conversation because um, I think it was important for us to spend time thinking about this and talking about this. Uh, and I just want to affirm to those who are listening right now, the Christian worldview isn't just a set of um, ideas to which we give intellectual assent. The right. Christian worldview is an operating system in which our lives are brought in a fully integrated way into conformity with God's revealed uh, will, his character and his will. And so um, if you think you have a biblical or Christian worldview because you believe a set of ideas, but your life is not conformed to those ideas, you don't actually have a biblical worldview. You, you understand and uh, and believe the same set of things that Satan believes, right? I mean, exactly it, the, right. the 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 spirits who have who align themselves against Christ know Him and acknowledge who He is. Um, they know the they know the scriptures. They just don't live by them. 
And so, um, yeah, I, I think that there's a real conversation here to be had at the interpersonal level among Christians within churches. Uh, it is a conversation about authority. It is a conversation um, about how we live in community with one another and how we communicate what are now very, very foreign ideas uh, to a culture that has lost all of its touch points with the gospel. And to your point, Carmen, on that piece of it, uh, just quickly, too, is that, yeah, we, we do need to study the truth as believers, but the reason why we study the truth is then then we know the direction towards which we're to be conformed. The, the truth is always found in the image of the Son, and, and we can then uh, ask God to work in our lives to form us and transform us so that we represent that image. And, and when we actually do that and we just don't teach the truth to the outside world, we are representing the truth to the outside world, that's where the real hope and the witness of this beautiful kingdom of which we're a part comes in. Amen. Amen. Peter Kapsner, thank you so much. I know that you will uh, now probably give in to the temptation to go listen to the audio of the birds. Let's just just, say I have a half an hour between now and when my class starts, and I I can't tell you how I'm going to spend that time. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. All right. Hey, blessings on your day, my brother. You too. Uh, Talk to you soon. That's Dr. Peter Kapsner. we got to take a break right now for Breakpoint. All right, have you been in the middle of a lake? Have you been in a storm in the middle of the lake? I want you to think about that for just a moment. You're in the middle of a lake and a storm rises up. And you're in a boat. Do you recognize that you're not in the boat alone? What are you doing in the boat in the middle of the lake? How is it that we trust God in the middle of the storms of life. Patrick and Ruth Schwank are up next to talk about just that. Their book is In a Boat in the Middle of a Lake, and I have copies to give away. The Gospel of John tells the story about a man from Capernaum who approached Jesus in Cana. Come heal my son, the man asked, and Jesus said the boy would be healed, and the man set out for Capernaum. Do you find yourself somewhere between Cana and Capernaum? Like the official, you begged Jesus for help. And like the official, you didn't receive the answer in the way you wanted. This is the issue of the not yet answered prayer, or the not answered in the way I asked prayer. How should we react? I'm sorry that the job did not materialize, or the cancer chose to metastasize. Life has its share of dark, dank moments. Read the Bible from the table of contents in the front to the maps in the back, and you will not find any promise of a pain-free life on this side of heaven. But you will find this assurance, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You are never alone. This is Max Locato. Excited to be joined today by Patrick and Ruth Schwank. We're talking about their book, In a Boat in the Middle of a Lake, Trusting the God Who Meets Us in Our Storm. Patrick and Ruth, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Well, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you, Carmen. We're looking forward to talking with you today. Well, I'm um, I'm excited about this content because it really does speak to the realities that so many of our listeners have. So um, maybe let's just start with this. Um, what what happened in your life together that really is at the centerpiece of this of this conversation? Yeah, well, we started a church here in Ann Arbor back in April of 2017. So we had moved to the Ann Arbor, Michigan area to to plant a new church. 
And it wasn't long after we launched that church that I just knew something was was physically wrong with my body. Now I'm over 40, so I'm used to like aches and pains and you know being being tired a lot, but I just knew something wasn't quite right. And so I went through a, a series of tests. I actually injured my left hip uh, not once but twice uh, in in the course of a week. And the pain became so significant by December of that year that I had to go in for an X-ray. And through an MRI and some lab work, they discovered that I have a type of blood cancer. So in January of 2018, uh, I was uh, diagnosed with a type of blood cancer that generally affects people over the age of 65. And so it's sort of an unusual type of blood cancer for somebody my age to have. And so we were immediately thrust into uh, a, a brand new world, a world we didn't want to live in. Yeah. First of all, that is a scary word for anybody to hear, the word cancer. Some kinds of cancers are more scary than other kinds of cancers. When you were taught, when when oncologists talked with you about, you know, the variety of cancer that you have, is there a word that they use that you thought to yourself, well, that's not a word I wanted to hear in this conversation? Yeah, well, I think incurable is mm-hmm. is the word. But, you know, I don't know. I always try to just settle myself down, try to, you know, pause and and take a step back until we could see the whole picture. I did my, which this is very difficult. So this wasn't pretty, this is messy, but, you know, I really tried to just keep things in perspective until we had talked through everything with the doctors. But I would say that the word that really gets you, scares you, you're in complete shock is when somebody says something's incurable. Yeah, I think there's no doubt about that. But let's assure our listeners, um, Patrick, we understand that you are right now in remission. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Praise God for that. I, I went through about five months of what they call frontline treatment. And that consisted of just, you know, chemotherapy um, and weekly injections and then had two stem cell transplants. So in um, July of 2018, had my first stem cell transplant at the University of Michigan and then came back several months later in October and had a second transplant, just trying to drive the cancer as deep as they could for as long as they could. And by God's grace, um, that that cancer is uh, currently in remission. So we just praise God for mm-hmm. for that, for his kindness towards us and just for so many people that that rallied around us and prayed for us. We really do think that it was a huge answer to prayer. I mean, my specialist said to me that he does not usually see responses like this. And so we just praise God for uh, the response to that med- that medication and just for the way that he was kind in, in answering our prayers. There's so many um, directions that we could go in this conversation. I know that right now um, I have a lot of listeners whose heart is just leaping out toward Ruth and just wondering um, what your experience was like, you know, initially and you know, you're not just looking at Patrick, you're looking at little people, you're looking at a church, you're looking at, um, you know, the care of your own family. Let's talk, talk with us about um, your your experience, and because you share so much of it um, in the book. The book is yeah. In a Boat in the Middle of a Lake. Yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, the initial response was shock. And really, for a few weeks, you can't do anything. But I think, you know, as time went on and we were able to have a a picture of what was ahead, I would say that God was so gracious in just giving me hope. And um, I felt very hopeful for, you know, after talking with the doctors, I knew that we were with the best 
you know, one of the best doctors in the country for this type of cancer. And, you know, I feel like that was all, that was definitely not an accident. You know, God, God um, sets those things up and puts those things in our lives for a reason. And so I feel like I could see his work everywhere. And that really gave me assurance and hope. And I think, you know, with our kids, um, we just tried to be really honest and upfront and, you know, all that we've taught them over the years about God and trusting God and having faith. And I mean, this was like the real test, right? I mean, they could see, they had to see us and they continue to watch us live out our faith in the middle of something so, so hard. And I feel like that will have a lifelong impact on them. And so we just really did our best to say, listen, you know, just like God was faithful, faithful before he's going to be faithful now and he's we can trust him and um i think that really helped them it helped their security and i feel like they did you know as well as they could with it because of you know they kind of followed our lead in that so the book is in a boat in the middle of a lake trusting the god who meets us in our storm the co-authors are patrick and ruth schwank um, we're going to continue this conversation in just a moment i want to tee this up with you guys one of the things that you write about is the importance of heaven during the times of life that hurt like hell. We're going to talk about the relationship of those two realities. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation now with Patrick and Ruth Schwank. They are the co-authors of In a Boat in the Middle of a Lake, Trusting the God Who Meets Us in Our Storm. Um, Patrick and Ruth, one of the uh, things that you guys write about is the importance of heaven during the times in life that hurt like hell. Um, talk about the relationship of those two realities. Yeah, you know, we we went through a season in our life where we were living um, in a town that we were fairly new to. I was pastoring uh, in, in a small town in Ohio, and it was about, you know, an hour from the town where we brought all of our kids home from the hospital. We'd raised our kids there. So we'd been in that town for 10 years. And then it was about an hour from, you know, where I grew up. And so we just, it was an interesting um, place for us to be because nowhere felt like home. Um, you know, we weren't living in the town where we had lived for 10 years. And I hadn't lived in my hometown of Fort Wayne, Indiana in a long time. And we were brand new to that town. And we began to realize that there's just something that happens in the Christian life where home goes from being behind you to in front of you. And I think that that's, that's especially true when you walk through suffering and, and trials, you begin to long for, for heaven in a new way. And when life does feel like it hurts like hell, that there's this new like longing that I think God graciously gives you. And there's these new longings for, you know, for what the Apostle Paul talks about in, in Romans 8, that, that we groan inwardly and begin to long for what Jesus is one day going to do. He's going to restore and renew all things. And so you know, I think when I was younger, like, you know, even as a pastor, like I didn't really think about heaven too much other than at funerals. Um, but but heaven has become such a, a precious promise to me. I mean, that mm. is the, the greatest promise that, that God gives us is that one day he's going to come and he's going to dwell with us. And that that life is is temporary here on earth, that we were made, we came from God, we, we belong to him, we're going to return to him. 
And so the hope of heaven is such a great anchor. Um, every other earthly hope, even if they're good earthly hopes, they're going to let us down, they're going to crumble. But that heavenly hope that we have in Christ crucified and resurrected um, cannot be shaken. And, and we've just experienced that new longing, uh, that new delight, that new joy that, that um, comes when, when we begin to look forward and set our eyes on heaven. The Schwinks are wise and compassionate companions through whatever the darkness is uh, that you might be enduring right now in terms of the storms of life. Uh, so I want to commend to you their their broader ministry. You can check out their blog, thebetterlifeministry.com. They've got a podcast, Root Like Faith. Uh, the book that we're talking about today, I mean, each of the Schwinks have written many books, but the book we're talking about today is the one, is the one that they have co-authored, In a Boat in the Middle of a Lake, Trusting the God Who Meets Us in Our Storm. First of all, I feel like uh, one thing that is curious to me in your little bio that the publisher sent me is that, um, among other things, you list that you have one hamster. I feel like that is a courageous thing to list because that reality could change at any moment. <laughs> That's right. And it has. Yeah. I, think, I think we're up to three now. <laughs> Actually, I think we were at two. We went down to one. Now we're up to three. It's ever changing. Yeah, I just feel like that's, you know, it's, it's okay to tell people you got four kids because, you know, that's a little, it's a little, a yeah. little cycle, you know, to that. But, you know, the hamster thing, I just wouldn't put a number to that one in the future. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Our kids have shed a few tears because of the presence and then absence of hamsters. So yeah. you're right. That yeah. number does vary. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about that because so kids being exposed to the reality of death, um, you know, it could be a hamster in your home. It's, it's, it's cycles of chickens at my house. Talk, talk about that. Talk about the reality of death and sitting down and talking with kids about life and death. You know, I had a mentor um, for many, many years. He's a dear friend. He's a stage four uh, throat cancer survivor. Uh, he had throat cancer uh, 17 years ago. And one of the things he told me just before I came into the house, there were several people that I called uh, when, I, when I heard the news, and um, he was one of them. And one of the things that he told me that I think was so helpful is he said, you only get one chance to tell your kids. And <laughs> that wasn't necessarily encouraged. It didn't sound like encouragement at the time, but he was so right. And that was so wise. And, and, and so I really thought about that, that, you know, you do only get one chance to, to tell your kids. And so I wanted to be careful of how we said, you know, what we said. And so one of the things that I, that I did um, is I ended up after several days, I mean, they, they saw Ruth and I, you know, uh, being quiet. They saw us crying. They knew something was wrong. And so after about two days, we, we got the kids together in our family room and we sat them down and we told them three things. We, we talked about how God is faithful um, and then he's going to be with us. He's good. He's going to be with us no matter what. Um, that God is going to grow us. He's going to draw us closer. Um, and then the third thing that I told them, as I said, watch the church. Um, I want you to love Jesus, but I also want you to love his people. And so we had the opportunity to really model that for them. Um, and, and what a blessing it was for our kids to see the church rally around us and love us and take care of us. And so I think the reality of what we were walking through was uh, certainly scary and frightening to them at times, but yet they were they were surrounded by so many just godly people who uh, were loving them and supporting us and were having faith for us at times when our faith was weak. And so I think that, that this has been obviously an incredibly challenging season for them. And yet because of the reality of, of you know their dad being sick and having to do some things that they wouldn't ordinarily do at, at 15 or 11, 
um, you know, our prayer is that God would just use this to to draw them closer to himself, that the reality of death would would just point them to the reality of their need for Jesus, and that he really is our, our only hope, that he was crucified and resurrected. And there is no greater hope, there is no greater um, peace or joy that, that comes um, other than, than knowing him. And so we've been able to talk through that and model that, and other people ha- have done that for them as well. And we just have been so grateful for the way that God you know, just continues to do that in their life. Let's do this as the as the last question. What did they see? How did they see the church as a community respond and talk about the importance of community? Yeah, I think that just one of the, the, the simple, practical ways that they saw the church respond, you know, a couple things. I mean, they saw people come over and bring us meals and drop off gift cards. Um, you know, they our, our church family, uh, you know, invited us into there's a, a couple that invited us into their home. And, and, you know, lots of people from the church came and we worshiped together and they prayed. And so just I think things like that, just very practical. I mean, they saw friends of ours you know, come to the hospital and, you know, sit with me. And so I think just to just to see the love of Christ in real tangible, practical ways um, was such a blessing, you know, to us and, and certainly to them. And so we're just so grateful for the way that, that God's love was, was manifest in the people around us. And, and community is just so important. Um, you know, we could not have walked through the last two and a half, three years apart from uh, the community that, that God surrounded us with. Well, thank you for the invitation to walk with you and your family and your church community through this experience by um, by offering the book, um, because it does help. Uh, it helps all of us not only have a window into the experience that you all have had, but how then, you know, we can learn to trust God uh, when he meets us in our storm. The book is In a Boat in the Middle of a Lake. Uh, you can find it at inaboatbook.com. Um, you can also connect with the Schwanks at their blog, thebetterlifeministry.com. The podcast is Root Like Faith. Patrick and Ruth, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Blessings. Absolutely. We'll be right back. I do have copies of Patrick and Ruth Schwank's book, In a Boat in the Middle of the Lake, to give away. If you would like to enter the drawing to receive one of the copies we have here in studio from Thomas Nelson, uh, go ahead and text the word book to 877-933-2484. Again, if you'd like to enter the drawing to receive one of the copies of In a Boat in the Middle of a Lake, Trusting the God Who Meets Us in Our Storm, just text the word book to 877-933-2484. Um, I want to conclude today with just a brief conversation about soul searching. Should I can just consider that uh, word or phrase for just a moment, soul searching. When you think about <clears throat> searching your soul or you think about soul searching, what experience in life comes to mind, what moment, what uh, missed opportunity or reconsideration, that's those tend to be the things that we're thinking about when we're soul searching. We're examining why we said or did or behaved in such a way, or we are searching for a way in which we might faithfully stand in the midst of a very difficult circumstance. Soul searching is one of the uh, descriptions of what Chris Wallace said he was doing 
following Tuesday night's presidential debate in Cleveland, Ohio. Chris Wallace was the moderator of that event. Uh, and the things that he said, not not immediately following the event, but uh, in the hours later, particularly after his plane arrived back in uh, uh, back in Maryland, people ask, you know, well, you know, what are you doing? How are you feeling? And he says, well, I'm doing some soul searching, doing some soul searching. People are affected in different ways by various experiences that we have um, in the culture, in our families, in our communities, in the world. And they are doing some soul searching in relationship to many things today. Let's be walking graciously and mercifully today with people who find themselves in a soul searching moment. And let's be the people who help them reconnect the eternal with the everyday. Let's be the people who say, hey, I I know the one who's the maker and lover of your soul. Let me introduce you to him. Let's walk with him a while. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.